With one in five Australians suffering from a mental health condition, many of whom also suffer from a range of comorbidities linked to that condition, frank and honest discussions around mental health for both patients and practitioners remains as important as ever. In this Talking Physio podcast by the Australian Physiotherapy Association, physiotherapist and psychologist Peter Hallett and physiotherapist Georgie Davidson sit down for an open discussion on this important issue and the role physiotherapy can play in treating patients with mental illness. The pair also discuss how, as practitioners, we can work to reduce the risk of burnout, as well as breaking down the common stigmas and stereotypes surrounding these issues. But before we start... One big shout out to our partners, Flexies, who are not only proud sponsors of this episode, but also remain the exclusive partners of the Physiotherapy Research Foundation, which works to support the profession by promoting, encouraging and supporting research. Research, I would add, that we wouldn't be able to disseminate the way that we do without you. So thank you. And let's get into it. So it'd be good to have a talk about, Georgie, with I guess some of the developments that are happening in Australia around mental health and physiotherapy. I think the APA having a, a new group being established, and I think it's really important for us to have some conversations around what that's going to look like, what's the role is going to be, and I guess where the role of mental health and physiotherapy is at the current time. What are your thoughts about the whole area around mental health at the moment? Um, I think that it's a really important area for us as physiotherapists. As physios, we know that you know in Australia, one in five people have mental health issues. So physiotherapists, regardless of what field they're going to be working in, are going to be working with people with mental health issues. And I think whether we realise it or not, when we're spending time with people, when we're interacting with them, when we're giving them different body-based movement practices, we're going to be influencing their mental health. And I think bringing more awareness to how we're actually doing that and what effect we are having is really important in um, better understanding outcomes, patient outcomes across the board. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the privileged roles we have as physiotherapists is that there's a lot of talking that we do while we're treating people, mm. and the very nature of putting hands on encourages more conversations for people to bring up a range of different issues. And I think it's like you say, you know, we're talking about one in five people having mental health mm. issues, and potentially you may not know that from the person who you're treating in front of you. Um, and so you don't know what issues are going to come up for them and, and those sorts of things during the whole consultation process. Mm-hmm, definitely. And having a greater sense of confidence in how to respond when people do come up with difficult issues for themselves around their mental health. I think that's a real area of need. And in speaking with physios, I think there is, there is a fear around that around not knowing what to say or what to do if people do disclose, you know, that they are feeling really bad. Yeah, so I think, you know, the opportunity to talk about this is very important to increase physiotherapy confidence. You know, some of the research work that's recently been done looking at the physiotherapist confidence, a study in Western Australia, um, plus also work looking at students, find that that's a really big area of need, that physios don't have so much confidence in knowing how to be working with this population group and to have a lack of confidence in this area. Yeah, and I think that can mean that that for some people they feel like they're walking on eggshells. And I think they they can then come to the whole consultation, particularly if it's like in a hospital environment or, or something like that where they've got some background information and they see the different diagnoses that might be on there, mm-hmm. that it can almost, uh, we need to be mindful that it can set up 
pre-existing ideas and stereotypes and those sorts of issues around what this person's going to be like before they've even met the person and our own biases that we bring into play with it all. And so I think there's a real challenge around that and how we manage that as individuals and as professional people. Yeah, and that feeds back in too, isn't it, to maybe not having the knowledge set and skill set around that. Yeah, and I think as physios, we're very familiar with seeing people with comorbidities. You know, we see someone with pain and they've got diabetes, for example. And, you know, we're familiar with that when it's physical kind of issues. But really mental health issues we can be addressing in a very similar way. You know, we're treating the person. You know, if we're treating the whole person and spending time with them and listening with them and helping to guide them in a way that they can bring something different into their life through our physio interventions, then, you know, it's no different in our approach to someone, as I say, with with pain and diabetes. Yeah, Yeah, and I would agree. I think in terms of... I have this saying that that what we need to remember continually in healthcare, that every healthcare interaction, intervention, is a human intervention. Mm. So as long as we are continually being mindful that this is a human-to-human point of connection here and we, we focus on the person and then in terms of even if they have a whole range of other comorbidities, it's actually getting the sense of what that means to them and how we manage all of that. I think the confidence is a really important thing. It's interesting, I looked at some research a a few years ago in hospital environments when they were looking at patient-centred communication and the research identified that in an acute ward and a range of other wards in hospitals, people were much happier asking about a patient's pain level Mm. or their bowels rather than asking how they were. Um, and even they would, when they, they studied the different health professionals on the wards, people would either talk over them when patients would raise concerns or side, just not respond to them. Almost a sense of being worried about, am I going to open a box of stuff here that I don't know how to deal with? You know, and this capacity that sometimes strong emotions come up for people and we need to be able to acknowledge and sit with them but not be scared by them because... Part of the human existence is having a whole range of different emotions and quite strong emotions at different times. Mm. Um, Normal human experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's where it's really um, this interaction, as you're talking about, I think for people with mental health issues, they've often not felt that they've been heard or understood. And uh, I know in my work, when I work in a persistent pain unit and working with people with persistent pain, there's a high incidence of mental health-related issues. And, you know, part of our intervention is to help people feel that they've been heard and for them to be safe, you know. So that interaction part of our involvement with with someone that comes to see us is just so important. I often feel that that's just... That can sometimes just be the treatment, you know, that first part of building that sense of of safety Mm. and trust. And validation of their experience. Validation, definitely. Definitely. And I think that's the, the beginning part of an interaction with any of our clients that we see, but particularly in people that perhaps have been struggling more with mental health issues, as a platform to then be able to build on other aspects of our treatment that we want to bring in. So if we're trying to encourage someone to do more movement or exercise, which we know is so important in the mental health field, we need to build that that sense of trust first. I think that's essential. It's interesting in, uh, in in psychology when we work with with clients. Often we say that you you earn the right to challenge people. So mm. you can't challenge people to start off with, but you actually earn that right through having the relationship that enables you to identify 
you know, and compare and contrast behaviour issues and that. And I think it's the same in physio mm. in terms of the, our exercise prescription is going to be much more likely to be taken on board if we've got the relationship, we're in a much better position to influence uh, people and also to understand their world around the meaningfulness of it and, and create it more meaningful for them. And, and so I think that, that validation, that hearing their story is such a really important part of it all. And I think as physios, I look at it in a, I work in a rehab hospital, we are generally speaking the main continuity that the people see throughout the course of their stay. It is a privileged and a very special relationship that we get to hear people's stories and to motivate and get them to, to be the best that they can be with it all. And what I'm hearing and feeling and hearing you talk about that, Peter, is that really working in this field can be very rewarding. Absolutely. Yeah, very rewarding for us as physios because, you know, you really can have that big effect, you know, and really help people to find a different way to navigate through the challenges that they're meeting, which can be really uh, inspiring, you know, for us as therapists. Yes. As well. And I, I, I believe that, that working in healthcare is a privileged position. I think mm. the capacity to walk with people during a time they're having some troubles or functionally mm. they, they they can't do the things they used to be and help support them and, and work towards their goals is a, is a blessed and privileged role and, and one that's very valued. It's interesting as we talk about the whole mental health issues and, and you know, there's been a real awareness of when we talk about people who, who have quite significant mental health issues, that people often forget about the physical issues they're presenting with. Um, and there's been a lot of research and, and a lot of conversations recently about the fact that people with you know, very severe and significant lifelong mental health issues have a lower life expectancy. They have much you know, significant issues around cardiovascular disease and smoking and a whole range of other comorbidities that can often not get the treatment. Uh, that they might need around those sorts of issues. And I think there's a real call to arms. I remember being at a workshop probably about four years ago now and the psychiatrist was begging people to treat the physical issues of her patients. That real sense of we have to make sure that we deal with the totality of this and not just look at the mental health issues. But these physical issues are actually having a very significant impact for people and impact on their quality of life. And that's our domain, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> that's our domain as physiotherapists to be able to help people with those physical issues. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the field of uh, depression, you know, in particular, there's a growing body of evidence of just how important physical exercise is, you know, as far as how it creates a shift, I think, in someone's personal self-efficacy, but also in the neurological and physiological changes in the body that can be really helpful. So, you know, guiding people through that phase of building that trust and safety, that being heard, the relationship building, and then progressing little bit by little bit, you know, offering people things that they actually feel confident in being able to do. Because I think if we give too much too quickly, then we set up that situation for failure you know so I think actually starting with something that's been decided in collaboration that is going to be possible for the person from an exercise movement based point of view can be so important to then as a platform to then continue on and and get to that point where there is engagement in physical activity whether that is you know a structured movement based program 
or whether it's more engaging in meaningful life activities, physical activities, you know, a combination perhaps of both of those. And some of that incidental movement things. Yeah, for sure. You know, because mental health issues can be very isolating, you know, and being able to provide suggestions and guidance for people to get out and to be more involved in different physical related activities is so valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And I think finding ways to engage with that is a really important part of it all. You know, the the research around exercise is really very strong Mm -hmm. around, you know, GPs are continually saying get people walking, get people moving when they're those early onsets around depression. And I I believe, like you say, it's that dual focus of, well, this is something I can actually do. Um, as well as the endorphins that people get from that and the other brain changes with it all. And even when it's hooked up into a social context, there's an a socialisation aspect of that around exercise that can be immensely powerful for people. And I think, like you say, that whole sense of making sure it's achievable for people and at a level that they can gain some level of empowerment with and success with is really important because they also may come to our consultation with a history of having failed before and always curious to reflect on those sort of learnings around what has their experience been of the healthcare system, what has been their experience of their past engagements. Because often we're not the first person they've seen. Often they've got multiple other stories, but they bring that to them with that interaction with us. And knowing that information can be really important if some of those interactions in the past have been unhelpful. For us to learn, to be curious, to go, you know, what's, what's the stuff that's going to work here? what's the the best support that we can provide for you yeah and you know in hearing you say that Peter it's it's a different way of relating in a way isn't it in the instead of being the we are the we are the fixer (laughs) you know we're the collaborator in this you know we're the facilitator you know our role can be to help through that kind of exploration of past experience and where are you now you know what are you experiencing now in your body to be able to facilitate a person's inner capacity to work through the challenges and difficulties from the insight from themselves and yeah I suppose my focus over the last you know decades in working with people is exploring that being able to guide people to be more aware of their inner capacity you know and from a physio perspective you know simple things like helping people to be more aware of how they're breathing you know and noticing the sensations of patterns of holding in the body and that gives us a base of being able to start with something that's really quite small and achievable that can be really part of that building that foundation and platform and, and i think breath is a really interesting thing because a number of times when i'm treating people in the hospital and there's a conversation around just breathe don't you know breathe through your exercises don't hold your breath with it all mm-hmm. um, and just that lack of awareness around what they what people are doing with breath and breath being a really important way to incorporate that into movement definitely it is. yeah and i think um, as physios if we have that fixing role trying to sort of control even with the breath we can go into that mode of okay i want you to take this number of deep breaths and this is how long you hold it for and which is a different kind of approach of actually helping people to just be aware of their natural patterns and rhythm of breath which can really be more empowering if we're saying you know how to breathe you already know how to breathe just notice how you're breathing and maybe explore is is that helpful for you or maybe there's a slightly different way that might be beneficial so that there's that empowerment through um, that exploration yeah. and again bring that highlighting that awareness of it all mm. you know and I guess there's a sense of raising that awareness with a sense of curiosity 
in the conversation with people? Have you noticed this? Are you aware of that type of thing? And, and I think what that means is as, as health professionals, as physios, we need to go into our consultation with a sense of curiosity in terms of a sense of an awareness of attempting to understand and forming that relationship, aware that we have you know, particular specific knowledge and skills around treatment and exercise prescription and manual therapy, and also aware that, uh, that that person has skills and knowledge about their own needs and what works best for them. And that coming together of those processes is really, really important to get the best outcomes, I think. Yes, curiosity. It's a really valuable way of approaching, isn't it, through those eyes of curiosity. You know, curiosity of the interaction, curiosity of the person's experience, but also curiosity of where we're at as health professionals as well and, and that uh, turning towards. Yeah, and I, and I think in terms of curiosity ensures that we keep listening. You know, I... I certainly am really mindful when I'm working in hospital environments where I do a lot of my work. There's a whole range of language that I often hear that are really red flags for me. So when I hear health professionals describing people as being resistant or being manipulative or being difficult, what I worry about is when we're using those labels, what we're also saying is I've made up my mind and I've stopped listening. And I guess our challenge here is to realise that every behaviour occurs for a reason. And so in terms of when we we dissect things in terms of particularly around people being manipulative, um, so to be manipulative you have to be really clear and planned and structured in what you're trying to achieve versus being emotionally reactive, which is more random than that. And we know often in terms of emotions sit together, we know that when people are showing anger often what sits behind that can be emotions of sadness or loss but if we just lead with the anger we miss the other stuff that might sit behind that and so our question is in terms of trying to understand the behavior and I think our curiosity to go wow I'm aware that I'm starting to to block this into a pattern maybe I need to pause and reflect here to go what am I missing you know what's the stuff that I'm missing in this interaction because of the risk being that once we have formed an opinion about someone, we create a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this whole cognitive bias process that happens that we interpret information only supports what we already believe and we discount information that goes anti to it all. So we always want to challenge ourselves around those sorts of processes to go, there's some learning here, there's some learning I, I need to understand this behaviour more, I need to have more of a conversation to understand what's driving this behaviour. And that's the growth there that we can build into us, our physio practice you know, as we work with different people from all different backgrounds and with different experiences, being able to be open to being curious about our own patterns as a pathway for building our own capacities and skill sets and knowledge and growth. Yeah, and I think our own patterns become important here because we are our tool in healthcare. The practitioner is the tool of the interaction and the intervention and so we need to be really mindful about that to be the best version of ourselves that we can be around our clinical knowledge and this human interaction. It's interesting when we talk about some of the myths around mental health and I was sort of looking at some of those myths that people have, both patients themselves and even practitioners and I think these myths serve the risk of setting up these sorts of preset expectations around it all. You know, I think often we hear patients that minimise their experience around the the difficulties they're experiencing 
Yeah, it's not uncommon in, in a rehab environment. We'll see people after having elective hip and knee replacements uh, that when they get to the rehab environment, the, frequently these people will be quite emotional. They'll be in tears. Almost the sense of the lead-up to that whole process has been significant. It's really only when they get to a place where they can just process what's just happened. It's been so tasky up to that time. And these are just a normal expression of emotions, but there's often this sense of, I shouldn't be feeling this. Or, or when people are depressed, you know, often they'll be saying, I should be over this, I should be able to pick myself out of this without an acknowledgement that it's actually a manifestation of the health issues and the, the mood issues they're experiencing rather than anything else. And I guess when people start saying what they should be doing, it sort of implies that there's a rule around that, which there is none. And often that sense of, of lack of self-compassion that people have, people often take the stick to themselves to beat themselves up as a way of feeling that they're going to motivate themselves. But when we look at the research around that, um, the research is fairly clear the more we beat ourselves up, the harder it becomes. The more we treat ourselves with kindness and self-compassion, the more likely we are to motivate ourselves and be the best version of us with it all. So that switch there, Peter, from perhaps if we're guiding people with some exercises, doing those exercises not because I have to or I should, but because it's meaningful for me in some way, that it's actually kind to myself, it's compassionate to myself. It's going to mean that I'm going to be able to do more of the things that I want to be able to do. So accessing that that self-compassion as the motivation to move forward. Yeah, and, and actually connecting with the why. Um, and often in terms of, I think, around healthcare, when we talk about exercise, we fluff it up. You know, we, we fluff it up and we say, well, why do you want to exercise? And you go, well, I want to exercise because I want to lose weight, I want to feel healthier, I want to have a healthier lifestyle. But that's actually not the real reason why people want to do it. If you actually anchor it down, it's because people want to live longer. And so... The question then comes, is the decision that you want to lose weight or exercise or be healthier because you want to feel better, or is it because you want to be here for your granddaughter's wedding? It's a different conversation. And what we do is we connect with the real motivation here around the real why that that motivates people much greater than the fluffing up we tend to do around these goals. We need to make it real and real for the person, and that can be a confronting conversation but it ends up being a different decision then for people and and serves a much greater level of motivation and inspiration for them with all of that. I think some of the stereotypes that people also feel, I guess health practitioners feel, around these whole mental health issues, you know, sometimes seeing it as, you know, some of the stereotypes being around a sign of weakness, that people, only weak people develop mental health issues or... um, all people with mental health issues are dangerous that can lead to a whole range of different ways that people react to it all. Have you thought about those sorts of issues? And they're, they're really complex issues. They are really complex issues. And I think often we might not even be aware of these sort of preconceived ideas and biases that we have. So I think just being able to again observe our patterns and notice what our preconceived ideas might be is so valuable because it is going to interfere and affect that relationship with someone and I think we often underestimate that 
you know, how we are in, in relation to someone and what we're mirroring back to them. And we're mirroring back to them through our body language and through our words and our language that they're dangerous, then that's not going to be a helpful interaction. Yeah. So I think, you know, bringing that to a greater sense of awareness for ourselves personally as physios is really valuable. And it comes down to knowledge as well. I think if we understand more clearly mental health issues, just as we might be exploring physical-based issues, then I think that that's a way also of rethinking the way we, we approach people with mental health-related issues. But then it comes back down again to the fact that we might be working with people that we don't even know have mental health-related issues. Absolutely. Because everyone has mental health. Yeah. You know, we're always relating to the situation in our thoughts, feelings and behaviours all the time. Everyone is. So really some of the things we're talking about here, yes, we're looking at the, you know, there's those more extremes of mental health, but again it comes back to how we're interacting with all our clients. Yeah. Because everyone, everyone's got stuff happening. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Everyone has got stuff happening in their life. Some of that we know and some of that we don't. You know, sometimes what happens through the touch that we do from a physio treatment point of view and the time we spend with people, people feel more comfortable to, to discuss some of those issues, some of the stuff that might be happening in their family and those sorts of experiences or in their life in general. But most people have something happening in their life. And if not now, at some point in time. With it all. So I think being open around that is important. And we all have, as physios, we all have something happening in our lives as yeah, well. Yeah. You know, so that um, being aware of, of that and how that's influencing us, yeah. I think is so valuable. Because that self-care becomes really important here, doesn't it? In it terms of, because I think there is a real sense of healthcare can tend to attack a particular personality that's driven to help people make people's lives better but can also mean that developing their own self-compassion can be a challenge. Um, you know, clinically, when I work with people with my psychology hat on, the hardest people I find to learn self-compassion are the people who are really good at helping other people. Almost a sense that they don't know what that role is to look after themselves. And, and so being able to manage that from a professional point of view, I think, is really important. The capacity to be kind to ourselves and treating ourselves like we would our friends is a really good analogy here. So important. So important. You know, if we're, we're sharing our energy with others, yeah. uh, there becomes a time where we're going to deplete. You know, I, I like the metaphor of the lake and the river running out from the lake. And, you know, if the lake is supported and nourished, then it will stay as a reservoir of capacity. But if there's this river running out and we're sharing our energy with other people all the time, then eventually that, that lake will become barren. You know, so being able to share back and take care of ourselves is just so important for ourselves but also for the work that we do. You know, it's not separate from our interaction with the people that we're with you know, every day, whether it be family and friends, whether it be the clients and you know, people that we work with. Yeah. And getting that balance is important because you want a sustainable career here. You don't want to. You don't want to be a firework where you sparkle brightly and then burn out. You actually literally want to be here for the for the long haul. Um, and it's interesting, Peter. We've both been here for the long haul. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's interesting though to see that you know I looked at the ARPRA website the other day, as you do, and <laughs> for another presentation I was doing. And it's really interesting to see how there's not so many physios in our age bracket. 
you know, there's a lot of young physios, a lot in that 25 to 29 year bracket. And then when you get down to the 40 to 44 age bracket, there's less than 50% of that number. And then as you go into the older brackets, it gets less. So it's a bit like a, it looks a bit like a ski jump, you know, in that there's that that fewer physios in those old age brackets. And I don't think we really know why that is, but I think the possibility, you know, is that it is a difficult profession, you know, in a way because of the complexity of the work that we do. And there perhaps are incidences of physios burning out and just feeling that their work is too hard, it's causing too much emotional drain for them, and that maybe there's something else they'd rather be doing. Which is quite sad for the profession, I think, that, you know, when people invest a lot of time and energy into building a career and then it doesn't continue. No. And particularly when you look at the hours it takes to become a, a skilled practitioner, it's your training, you know, the plus 10,000 hours they talk about to become skilled at things. It's a significant investment of time and, and we want to find ways that we maintain people in the profession, that we make this a sustainable profession for people. Um, and I think, like you said, I don't think we fully understand it, what are some of those issues. I think, you know, historically it was the only way to get career advancement. It used to be much more going down an administrative pathway rather than a clinical specialisation pathway. Um, but I think, you know, there's a, there's a call to understand that more, to understand what those processes are that mean we, we lose people through that process. And we're losing that skill set and that wisdom, aren't we? If Absolutely. We're, if we're losing... Uh, physiotherapists that have been out there at the coalface of working with people clinically uh, and the the knowledge that they have to to share we're losing that possibility yeah and maybe there's some reflection here at a professional level around you know if we understand more around what that looks like that that leads to people leaving the profession there might be some reflection that as a profession we, we need to take as well to go how do we make this work more sustainable for people what is the balance here around all of all of those sort of issues really important really important issue and that that's one of the this importance of physiotherapists well-being i think is one of the focuses of the mental health now that there is this new apa mental health group is one of the focuses of that as well as obviously alongside of working with other people i think those things go hand in hand So I think that the exciting thing that now we have a mental health group, I think that there is this potential to bring more of these things to awareness and to look at opportunities, as you suggested, Peter, to better understand what is actually going on. Absolutely. And I think having those more conversations around all of this with with our colleagues and our peers to understand these issues better and seeing how the profession can be, I guess, more diverse going ahead from the point of view Healthcare is changing, you know, and I think in terms of new models of healthcare are happening more and more. I I think if I look about it for people who are depressed, for example, you know, there's been for a long time focus around psychological, psychiatric counselling type of treatment approaches, you know, and then there was much more evidence around the exercise being an important role here to to get people moving. Uh, More recently, evidence around diet and the role of diet and Mediterranean diets that might have in in impacting around this. And I guess what we're noticing more and more is that what people need is the care of multiple professions, that we need to, to have structures that support that in the way that we deliver services, but particularly for our private practitioners, ways that we can access a whole range of other services 
you know, around outcome-driven processes, but also a broader focus around the physiotherapy treatment, that it can be done around a team-based approach with the GP and the, the psychologists and the counsellors um, and the dietitian. Um, because much more we're seeing multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary healthcare being the focus as you know, we're moving away from the slicing and dicing human beings into bits and this sense of there's an interaction here. You know, I remember when I, being a psychologist first and then doing physio training, people always said to me why they're, they're, they're so different. And, and I guess I look at it now and there's a sense of there's a clarity around those two areas do sit side by side because there's an interaction within the mind and the body with these sort of processes. And I think the more that we can get in teams around that sort of stuff and have funding models that support that and encourage that, I think is a really important thing. Because I think the other thing is, from a professional point of view, balancing individual and team-based work can actually make this more sustainable for people as well and I think lead to better clinical outcomes. I think so. I think so. Certainly we see that in the in the pain service that yeah. I work in, They're offering that multi-D, multi-D service. And I think, you know, the idea too of individual versus group-based programs, I think is really interesting too, because our experience and my experience having as, you know, as a mindfulness teacher over a number of years, a yoga teacher and now working in a pain clinic, is that group-based programs are so incredibly valuable for people. You know, because you're in a group of people where you feel you don't have to explain yourself, you know, you, you can feel that you're more understood and it provides that opportunity for building more relationships and socialisation yeah. as well. So I feel that you, when you talk about models in the future, this role of group-based programs that can be specifically you know, adapted, modified, catered to different groups of people, I think is is a really valuable thing to explore. Yeah, yeah, and I think they're, they're really powerful, that whole notion of, and certainly working in a rehab environment, these notions of a group of people exercising together through their own individualised program, so the care is tailored to what their needs are, but there is an opportunity for validation. There is an opportunity to reality test their experience with other people. Um, that is really, really powerful for people um, and for people to motivate each other from an exercise point of view that can be really beneficial. And what I've learned I think through working with people and particularly through group programs is that and it comes back to what we talked about before about our expectations how we can really underestimate people's capacity you know when we find a, a pathway that does validate their experience and feel meaningful for them how they can actually make some really amazing changes in their lives. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. It's, it's, if we can find the right pathway, there is that capacity, that quite amazing capacity for people to make really inspiring changes. Yeah, yeah. And I think in terms of it's really interesting when we look at the group-based stuff, I wonder how often we might exclude people with mental health issues from going to a group-based intervention um, because we might worry about how they're going to cope or whether that's going to work for them. And I think our, our challenge here is to go, one, to have that conversation with the, with the client or the patient, to go, what's your, what's your sense here? But I think our challenge here is how do we make those programs accessible for people? What are the changes we need to make to make it accessible for people? So just like wheelchair access, it's actually not okay to say, well, we've got stairs here and that's, actually, that's just how it is. There's a focus on modifying that 
to fit what people need. And I think there's a sense around all areas of healthcare delivery around people with mental health issues. What are the changes that we need to make here to make this accessible for a broader range of people? Is it smaller group numbers um, to make it less daunting and less overwhelming for some people? I think being curious about that and viewing it not that we have this rigid program, but maybe we need different programs here to be flexible around that, to cater for people's different needs around their comorbidities that they have. Yeah, it's a really important discussion. Mm. Very important. I think the other thing I might talk about, and I guess this is a real passion of mine, is this notion of diagnostic overshadowing. And what we notice with this, it's a sense of when people may present at the emergency department with physical-based symptoms and they have a psychiatric mental health diagnosis, the over-reliance and over-putting down the physical presentation of symptoms to their mental health issue. And again, there's often a sense of people go, it's anxiety or depression or their other mental health issues that they're experiencing, you know, maybe schizophrenia, and there's a focus to go, well, those physical symptoms are the basis of their psychiatric condition, so we don't need to look any further because it's been put into that process of it being a manifestation of the psychiatric issue. When in effect, sometimes when you look at those issues that people are talking about, they're not congruent with the psychiatric condition, they're actually congruent with the physical condition. And sometimes that, that awareness to go, maybe the two of these things can coexist. You know, maybe we could have both you know, some issues around mental health issues, but there's also a physical issue, and we need to make sure that we're not missing the physical stuff. You know, so I have this, this real view that once in, in the hospital where I work, as soon as we start attributing things to mental health issues, I say to my team, double down and double check. So that just means we need to be hyper-vigilant here to make sure we're not missing something. And I, I remember treating this woman who'd had a, a hip fracture that was, had been managed surgically and everyone was putting down her lack of progress to, uh, to her anxiety. Yeah, and it was really hard because of the lack of family that could inform about her anxiety to, to really know what that was looking like. But when I was talking to her, she really was describing a reasonably active life that she had before. And I can remember having to persist and persist for this woman to go, look, there's something clinically, this is not matching a pattern of anxiety. And what it ended up being is that the surgical repair she'd had had failed and she ended up having a hip replacement done. And so there was a sense of this presentation, even though she had a described history of anxiety, it wasn't consistent with a pattern of anxiety. And it just I remember it just not sitting well with me going, there's something, there's something else here that we are missing. And that sense of her getting through to have that hip replacement in a timely manner was just that reaffirmation to go, when everyone else is saying it's this, let's just double check, make sure we're not missing something. Um, around that. Something there, Peter, about trusting that. Yeah, trust. <laughs> trusting that, okay, there's this feeling here that it just doesn't all match up. Let's, yeah, let's yeah. pursue that further. Yeah, trust, trusting your gut. Because often I find sometimes those diagnoses around anxiety, depression, psychological issues are a diagnosis of exclusion. That there's a sense of sometimes for some health issues, it's like, well, I, we can't work out what else it is, so it must be this. And I, I guess sometimes we just need to be really careful that we're not missing something. Because I worry that when people go, it's this, they stop looking. But it could be this and this. It could be the two things together. 
Yeah, very important to have that open mind. Yeah, always be curious and realising <laughs> and always realise in healthcare that things change. Do you know what I mean? We know that conditions change over time. You know, if there's a change in that clinical presentation, we need to always be looking for that and reassessing using our physio skills to really look into that. I'd like to just share a case study, which I think is a pretty typical situation that as physios we might feel a bit lost, you know, as to where to begin and what to do. And the case study I'm thinking of is a, is a lady who came with persistent pain. She'd had an anterior cruciate ligament repair a year before and had been left with restricted mobility from that, but also had widespread pain and a history of trauma at different intervals through her life and presented with clinical diagnosis of depression and anxiety. And in speaking with her and hearing her history, you could hear that she tried many different interventions that hadn't been helpful and she was really feeling very stuck. And you know, as a physio, when someone can't move at all without increasing their pain and they're very limited in their physical capacity, it can often be really hard to know where to begin. So in her case, you know, we recognised that she'd developed patterns of movement and we talked about these patterns of movement that were really protective for her, you know, protective around having had the, the knee injury and what had happened around that, but also life patterns. You know, we don't need to go back into the history, but we can just say we develop these patterns, you know, and how we, you know, hold ourselves in our body and how we breathe. And those patterns are quite understandable because they're about survival. You know, this is something that's really kept you kept you going and kept you engaging in life. So just acknowledging that. But then also there comes a point where it's helpful to start looking at these patterns, you know, and just gently and being curious, again, that word curious, around exploring these patterns. And, you know, maybe this is something we can do and explore a little bit more together. You know, would that be something you'd be open for? And, yeah, you know, and then you get that response of, okay, well, maybe, yes, I'm feeling a little safe here. We could begin to explore that. And in this particular lady's case, we started just talking about how she was breathing. And she initially had a real aversion to even noticing that she was breathing because she said, oh, I've tried that in the past and that feeling of having to breathe in and having to breathe out, that sense of being controlled is really difficult for me and just makes me feel more anxious. I said, well, that's, that's really interesting. Just sitting there now, you know, are you breathing? And she said, yeah. I said, can you notice that? Can you notice that you're breathing? Yeah, I'm just noticing that I'm breathing. So there was no intention to have to control or change the breath and just noticing the breath. And, you know, after just sitting there and just being with the breath there for a short period of time, she noticed that she started to feel a little bit different, you know. In her case, she was feeling a little bit calmer, you know, and she was able to name that. And it was a really important point in developing that relationship of trust, even though it was something that was really small. And I think that we undervalue those really small moments that we might have with our client. Because then that was a foundation of, okay, well, that might be something you can work with at home, just noticing a couple of breaths at a time. And maybe we can find a couple of little gentle movements that you can do as well that might be okay for you. Now, her knee was a big issue for her, so I thought, well, we don't necessarily need to go straight to the knee. 
you know, maybe we can look at doing a couple of little movements around posture correction, you know, posture change, not correction because posture is posture, but posture change and giving her that capacity to just move with her spine forward and back a few times doing that, maybe tuning into the breath if she wanted to but she didn't need to. And then doing a few ankle movements and doing a little hip squeeze. You know, so not movements that we would think of as being able to build strength or flexibility or capacity, but using that awareness and tuning back into the body as a way of building safety and safety in the body as a platform for relationship and as a platform to go, okay, movement can be about strength and balance and, and flexibility, but movement can also be about other intentions. You know, we can use movement to build relationship. We can use movement to build safety. We can use movement, you know, to build that sense of self-capacity. I can actually do that. That's okay. I can't go to the gym and do all that stuff, but I can do this. So it gives that sense of empowerment. And I think that we can often underestimate the value of doing something really small. And I think the really small can be incredibly valuable. And again, it comes back to intention. And I like to think with, with movement, what is the intention of this movement practice? Is this about yeah, the typical strength, flexibility, balance? Or is this about tuning in and building relationship and building capacity and empowerment? And then from that platform, we can move to those other things that we know are very important, you know, and doing a little bit more physical exercise, aerobic capacity with people with depression. We know all that. But movement has so much scope within us. And, you know, coming from a mindfulness and yoga background, you know, the power of how we approach movement, how we teach movement, the language around movement means that it's so much more than just those physical measures. And I think we underestimate that capacity. And I think when we're working with people with their body, we are influencing their mental health, whether we know it or not, and bringing that to greater sense of awareness. What actually might we be doing here is just so valuable. So broadening out our perspective on the power of movement. And I think, I think it's, it's a really interesting thing because I think often we, we have this sense of when people get depressed there's a particular way they carry themselves and that might have an impact on how they process information you know more stooped over on that but there's also been research to go goes the other way you know from a mindfulness point of view that for people who can actually have a smile tasks seem a little bit easier so through movement we can influence how easy or, or hard things are um, and so there's a power in that but using using movement as a way of changing how we feel and I think physios are really good at that I think all of the work around you know, what we do around for people with mental health issues and that having movement at its core, you know, around the, the totality of that, what that means from our profession is really important. Really important. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we know ourselves, we can see it in body language, you know, the yes. posture. And that little shift in posture really can create a, a shift in, in our emotional tone, you know, and our thinking world from just the smallest shift. But I think it also is helpful to recognise that sometimes those postural habits are understandable because they've been about survival. And the idea of coming in and starting to look at helping people to explore that posture, we might think that's something that's really simple. And it is simple, but it's not necessarily easy for the person to, if it's a habit pattern that's been about survival over a long period of time, 
then little shifts, little shifts are things to really value. And I think when we're working with people with mental health issues, really valuing those little, little shifts, different responses, different ways of relating is so important to do. Absolutely. So if this is an area that you're interested in exploring more, I mean, and we're talking about the area of working with human beings. (laughs) (laughs) So if this is an area you're interested in, remembering that we now have this mental health group, it's it's a new addition to the APA smorgasbord of opportunities. And, you know, our groups across Australia are still relatively small, but really filled with people that are really interested and passionate in this area. So there's a real energy. So we really encourage you to get in touch with our local group members. There's one in every state. And, you know, to be able to contribute and to ask questions and perhaps help how we go forward because, you know, we're looking at what does the profession need, you know, through the eyes of this mental health group and we're really interested in feedback and also information sharing more about what you feel would be helpful for the profession. So that was Georgie Davidson and Peter Hallett and you've been listening to another episode of Talking Physio. One final thank you to Flexies, Australia's number one heat wrap, for helping us to produce this podcast. Thank you, Flexies, and thank you to you all for listening. I hope it's been both informative and interesting, and I can't wait to bring you another episode very soon. Thank you. Thank you.